All right, here we go. Back for round two of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. Pierre Lebrun, I know you're in Toronto. And um, Pierre, I know our goal today on this episode is not to talk about someone who will get traded two minutes after we get done taping. So I, that's, I know the goal is modest, but that's what we're going to go for in episode two of Two Man Advantage. Are, are you with me on this? Let's do it. <laughs> and to help keep us on the straight and narrow, our good friend, longtime colleague, and kind of the athletic guru as far as I'm concerned, Craig Custance in Detroit. Craig, it feels like World Home Week now with the three of us back on podcast duty. Really, I mean, this is, this is the way it's meant to be, Scott. It feels good. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. No, well, no, I, I felt sort of obligated to. And plus, it's really important because I, <laughs> I was afraid I couldn't get the three-way call going, and I knew that you would be able to help me uh, if we couldn't. Um, I'm glad to hear I, that. Uh, actually, you know, we're going to talk some preseason. We're going to talk some Eric Carlson. Uh, Pierre, you have a great piece on The Athletic uh, as we're speaking now on, <clears throat> you know, what might lie in the future in terms of the CBA and Eric Carlson in San Jose. But... Craig, I want to to start with you because you're sort of a guest here, but you're also a guy who I think gives a nice perspective on the athletic. And I wonder how scary it is that uh, even after all these years, you haven't been able to escape Pierre and I, that when you were thinking about going to the athletic, that you might be free of the two of us. And yet now here we are all conjoined, the three of us once again. And I wonder, you know, when you first started to started talking to the athletic, when we were all at ESPN and, and the, the vision that they had and, and maybe what you imagine it would be. Uh, I know you just came back from some meetings in Toronto. And I think as we speak, once again, I may say something that will, will be overlapped by events in about two minutes, but I think we yeah. have reporters in 30 of 31 markets now covering teams. Um, plus you know, sort of national folk like Pierre and myself and Eric Tehachuk, uh Sean McIndoe uh, recently added in Toronto. And I wonder, you know, did you, could you have imagined something like this when you first began chatting with the athletic and, and, and what's it like for you to, to see where it is right now? Yeah, no, I don't know if I could have imagined this. I mean, I, I mean, you guys know the guys that started it, Adam and Alex are, I mean, they, they did paint a, an aggressive picture. So the, you know, the vision when I was kind of weighing ESPN and the athletic was, was, you know, here's what this is going to look like, not just in the short term in terms of who we're going to bring aboard, but here's the long-term vision. And and you're sitting there and I'm listening and I'm like, wow, that sounds great. But, you know, if we can accomplish half of that, you know, we're, we're going to be doing really well. And lo and behold, here we are a year and a half later and it's it's well beyond that. It's It's been great. And uh, so, I, you know, I don't know if I, I can imagine it, but I, I can tell you like the, the point that was craziest for me was, you know, thinking... I got hired by the athletic and then a few weeks later was at the draft staying in a Airbnb with the two guys that started the company and James Myrtle. There was, and that was, that was our draft coverage. And then contrasted against the last one where there was 50 of us and in a year, you know, it was crazy. And so, um, and, and it's, we were all in our Airbnb. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, it was, it, so it was, and, and here we, you know, and you mentioned the, the kind of the meeting we had in Toronto and just, just planning out, you know, where in Europe do we want people to be this year and, and what, you know, what in terms of travel and in terms of coverage and, and what kind of women's hockey expansion can we have and, what you know, just like what the sky is the limit and what we want to do. And and it's because the, the response from subscribers has been so great in terms of the support and it's been great, yeah. 
I'm, I'm glad that you uh, relented on your Burnside free clause in your contract. So that was good. Yeah, it was good for me anyway. So. Uh, Pierre, uh, um, before we get to preseason hockey and stuff, how are the renovations going in your in your house? I, I think of you often because I I think there should be a reality <laughs> series about what's going on in your house, which is basically being yeah, demolished around. First world problems. That's uh, definitely first world problems. Uh, I have to say that off the top. But yeah, we're living. Uh, we're living on uh, the top two floors, while the, the main floor and the basement are, have been gutted. So we're all uh, we're all all getting to know each other again as a family. It's fun. <laughs> so it just it just means that when you Craig come to town, I will not be hosting as I normally am for about two years. Well, <laughs> so, no, there have been. In fact, it would be two years ago, right around now. I guess uh, we'd have been in the middle of the World Cup of Hockey and the several epic gatherings at the uh, LeBrun household uh, during that tournament. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the finished product. So uh, in here, fact, I remember, uh, I remember we taped the podcast while drinking bloody Caesars. <laughs> yeah, we did. In fact. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, I, I want, I want in on that before the end of the season, we have to have a bloody Caesars podcast taping. That's for sure. So <laughs> as you know, I like to call them bloody Caesars instead of just Caesars. So yeah, they're really just Caesars, but I did that for you because you're, <laughs> you become very American and, you know, uh, what can I do? Uh, now, I can't speak for Craig. I'll ask him, but I, I know, Pierre, you have been beady-eyed on preseason hockey, which I can't think – I don't know that there's any – well, NFL preseason is pretty ragged too, but <clears throat> last year I did six preseason games when I was in Dallas. I cannot remember a single moment from any of the six games other than being so thankful when the final whistle blew. And, and I think teams, you know, I spent some time in Raleigh at the start of training camp and uh, I was talking to uh, another uh, um, executive the other day for another story. And they were the, the universal messages. Let's just get through this without anything terrible happening. But you, you've been watching the Montreal Canadiens and, I wonder in general, like, is there, is there anything to be learned from preseason games now? Like, is there, like when you think of all the times that you've covered the NHL, is there much to be learned from preseason or, or do you just have to maybe use a magnifying glass to, to really get the value? Or is there really, can you just throw everything out the window? And, and I, and just before you answer the Carolina hurricanes, as we speak, undefeated in preseason thrashed Tampa six, one, as you know, my Stockholm syndrome team, so I think you know it bodes well for the regular season because they they've now they're undefeated in preseason. But do you throw it all out, or what do you take from it? Yes, I'm waiting for your Carolina win the Stanley Cup pick. No, with not a, with the pick, not the cup, but they're they're okay. going to be a force. Okay, force of what? I actually do think they'll do great. I think Rob Rindemore is a terrific coach, but you know I, I think preseason is different for every team. It depends what place you are in your, in your cycle. And, you know, I, I obviously do a ton of Montreal games from the Toronto studio of the TSN as part of our TSN regional package. And so once again, doing the game last night, uh, which by the way, I had quite a lot of bite to it, Florida, Montreal are going after each other. And, you know, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll probably know Max Tomey's fate, but yeah. probably facing a suspension, certainly hearing for his, uh, for his sucker bunch on, the uh, Aaron Ekblad. But, you know, I think I think of the Montreal Canadiens. Last year, they they went 0 and 6 to start preseason in Claude Julien's first full year. And um, while you always say preseason doesn't matter, it really. I mean, they ended up winning the last two preseason games, but it really sort of gathered the storm clouds before the regular season even started for that team. Now, if you go 6 and 0, 
literally no one will save me anything, but you can't go in six, I guess is what I'm saying. So it's, it's kind of a, almost a lose-lose proposition. So, um, and you know, for the Canadians, tons of new faces, you know, who looked good the last night was Matthew Becca, who probably will be their fourth line center. They, they, uh, signed him away from Tampa's system and showed some wheels and some smarts, uh, in this first preseason game with the Canadians. But, you know, it's, it's going to be tough sledding for the Canadians. Uh, Carey Price was terrific last night, made a mid-season form save off Mike Hoffman, and uh, he basically will have to be the store in most nights, of course, for them to have a shot to be even in the conversation. Um, you know, they're, they're experimenting with Max Tony at center whenever he's back again, uh, which frees up Jonathan Druin to, to try to be a little more offensive on the wing. But uh, goals are going to be at a premium again for the Canadians here this year. Uh, all right, Craig, what's your favorite ever preseason moment? Like, all the years you've covered the NHL, favorite preseason moment? Oh, my gosh. I don't have one. Yeah, okay. So I think that, that sums up. Here's what I'll say, though. Like I was thinking as you guys were talking, I had a conversation yesterday with a coach out west who, who and he was like, you should write how competitive this year's preseason is going to be because he felt like watching some of the Vegas games, he thought he thought they were in midseason form, and, he, and and like he was contending that teams were traveling more players in the West because they felt like um, they wanted to hit the ground running in October, just because it's going to be so competitive. So there was maybe more intensity in the preseason this year than last year, and so I was like buying it. And I'm like, man, that's a good story, and I'm I'm all in on this idea. And then I actually went to a preseason game <laughs> and yeah. watched, you know, the Penguins, where I think the only player I knew was Jack Johnson that they'd sent and. And you know it was it was everything that I expected in a preseason game. So maybe I'll win. You know, you know what? Uh, Bob Boomer brought his A lineup to Montreal last night, and uh, he had Barkov's full top line and Vincent Trocheck's yeah. full second line, and and they were pretty dominating. And and I think there's some of that for some teams. I think they they want to see their guys as quickly as possible. The problem is the schedule, right? When you're playing four or five preseason game in five days, you need 46 players, not 23. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to bring the A team. And I think Pittsburgh had played in Buffalo the night before or something, so there was still a bit of that going on. But So, yeah, that was the contention that because the league is so tight this year, that perhaps that's going to, you know, that's going to increase the importance of games in October and thus, you know, continuing that would increase the importance of games now as you want to get guys comfortable playing together. But, you know, it's, I don't mind the theory, I guess. I, I, must, under, I must admit, I, I never quite understood why the NHL doesn't, cap the number of preseason games or have some some sort of structure like and I'm speaking because I don't even know the answer but I assume the NFL like there's you, like you play what do they play four preseason games or whatever the number is but you know there's oh, yeah. you, Pierre you mentioned I think the Habs played eight some you know some teams in the past they play preseason games because they and they'll go on the road to try and make money right small market teams have played more exhibition games in neutral zone sites, sites in the past because they can add, you know, they, they'll make some money from it as opposed to, you know, Florida or Carolina playing at home in front of, you know, zero fans. And um, as I mentioned, Dallas last year played six, which was, that was like four too many for me, but it, it seemed like a nice modest amount, relatively speaking. But, you know, and to, to your point that if you have to play eight preseason games, you've got to keep players around because you don't want your you know, your top line guys playing eight preseason games before you embark on an 82 game regular season. But, you know, to me, why not shorten training camp? Why not say, okay, maximum four games. 
And I know the team schedule their own preseason games. In fact, this executive I was talking to was saying, you know, it's a bit chaotic because you you do your own you do your own scheduling, right? The NHL has nothing to do with it, apparently. So, um, you know, why not cap it? Just have four games, shorten training camp by two or three days. Uh, maybe, Pierre, we get closer to your goal of having the playoffs done by the end of May. But uh, anyway. That- well, I, I was going to get to all this, is that, you know, Jerry Jones, the owner of the greatest football team on earth, <laughs> made a pretty good argument uh, before the season for the NFL. I believe his argument was that expand the regular season to from 16 to 18 and, and cut preseason in half. And I think for football, it makes total sense because at this point, it, the football teams are so scared to play their starters in preseason. Why not get fans a real thing since they're paying uh, real prices? And um, and I think there's a conduit to hockey. Um, you know, I don't want to expand the regular season, but we can certainly finally, which has been my dream forever, start the NHL regular season in, in late September instead of early October, cut preseason, and then obviously be able to finish the playoffs earlier than, than we do. But it'll never happen for a lot of reasons. A lot of the U.S., southern U.S. NHL team owners actually would rather start the NHL season in November yeah. than October. Yeah. So that they've got the complete opposite view of that. Um, and the NHL never wants to have the Stanley Cup final late May because it goes head-to-head with the... Uh, well, at least this was a 90s, 2000s view of life when television mattered in the world, but um, in terms of cable TV, because uh, that was sweet, sweet, right, late May? Yeah. And the NHL used to always be scared to have the Stanley Cup final head-on with when all the series finales were on. Nobody does. I, I haven't even heard yeah. anyone talk about sweeps week in ten years. I know, I know. So, I mean, I, I, I just think it would be an amazing world to, to start the season around September twentieth, right now. And uh, because I think people are ready, they're into it. You know, kids are in school. Uh, uh, people are back in college. They're back at work. Those who take a lot of time off in the summer. <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And uh, I just feel like the, the psyche is there. The players are ready. They're pumped. I mean, the players skate all summer. Like, I don't know why there's training camp. They, they, they have their own camp all summer. And so let's get it going September 20th, and uh, let's hand the Stanley Cup by May 31st. Yeah. And I'll let's do it. All right, Craig. I'm gonna. I want to circle back and, and want to ask, ask Pierre about his piece on Eric Carlson, which is uh, uh, up on the Athletic site. So you should go and look at it about Eric Carlson and his. Um, potential long-term stay in San Jose, but I, I'm going to. I want to start with you. Um, mm. Let's 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 talk Western Conference and let's talk sort of big picture with the the arrival of Eric Carlson in San Jose after months and months of speculation of where he might end up. Uh, of course, uh, on the coming fast on the heels of the acquisition of Max Pacioretty by the Vegas Golden Knights. And what what do you what does what does that do? to the balance of power in the Western Conference. When you think of the West now as in, in, in to, you know, overview, when you think about the regular season starting in less than two weeks now, I guess, uh, what what do you think of when you think of the West now with the, with some of the off-season moves made by by top-end teams uh, in the conference? Well, you know, as, as exciting and crazy as the San Jose edition of Carlson was, to me, the, what Vegas did overall was was... I don't want to say more impressive, but I think more impactful because I looked at Vegas and was, and we were already kind of saying this going into the preview stuff. It was like, okay, if you're, if you're going to identify a team in the West and take a step back, 
and miss the playoffs. They, they just seem like a really easy one because of all the intangibles, right? Like they're, they're no longer the expansion team. They no longer have a chip on their shoulder. They no longer have something to pull. Oh, I don't know about no longer you know, chip on their shoulder. <laughs> well, I, I, think you, like, I think you need to go read my Vegas story from earlier this week there, Greg. <laughs> no, like, so like that, that was kind of the outside perception, right? And, and, right. and what, what happened is along the way is they're a better team now. Like you, you subtract Perron and James Neal and you bring in Paul Stashney and Max Pacioretty. That's, that's a better team. And, you know, in talking to people in, in, you know, again, the conversation I had yesterday that the guy was saying he felt like Vegas was in mid season form, like they were absolutely flying. And then when you combine that with exactly what you were saying, Pierre, where, you already heard rumblings about, well, Vegas is going to, you know, they no longer have a chip on their shoulder. And then you go out and see it and you're like, oh, actually, this is, this is still the same hungry group that still feels like it has something to prove. And, and, mm-hmm. and then you factor in the fact that they had six billion draft picks. And so they, they actually had a really good draft. Now, some of it's been sent away in, in trades, but there's young players coming now that weren't coming in the past. Um, uh, like they're, they're to me, what they did was really significant because, instead of making them an easy team to eliminate from the playoffs, you, you add them into the pile of, okay, this team is, is one I can go all the way. And and yeah. now I'm like, who, who are you taking a step? Like who's going to take a step back to get Calgary in? Who's, who's going to take a step back to get Edmonton in? If you really think one or of those St. two Louis. teams or right yeah. or St. Louis. And, and I don't have a good answer for that. I, I, the West, you know, the, the East may be top heavy and maybe has a couple better teams, but man, like there's going to be the whole entire conference is going to have 95 points and yeah. you know, and there's going to be three teams that you think you want to stay in the cup that's going to miss the playoffs. It's going to be crazy. I, I think Craig, you absolutely nailed it. And you know, I do have one main concern with, with Vegas and I, I mentioned this in that, in that piece this week, but I, I do think that they kind of got away with a bit of smoke and mirrors on defense last year. Mm. Um, part of it is they Schmidt had a, a career year and it was, he was so outstanding. Uh, but now he's gone for 20 games with his suspension. And uh, Shea Theodore, as we take this, and here we go, Scotty, so you know he's going to sign this like today, but we <laughs> think that Shea Theodore is still unsigned, RFA. Uh, they added Nick Holden, but I still worry a bit uh, on the back end, which, by the way, uh, you know, my favorite saying is actions speak louder than words. We know that George would be tried for eight months to acquire Carlson, so that should tell you something. I mean, I think they feel that is probably their biggest need uh, moving forward. And, and I think they will act there, try to add on the blue line between now and the February 25th trade deadline. But outside of that, I think Craig nailed it. I mean, I, lo- I love James Neal, and I thought he was a heck of a warrior in the playoffs. But, you know, if you trade James Neal and David Perron for Paul Sashing, a center, and Max Pacioretty, a two-way demon, uh, you've upgraded your team significantly. Especially when now you can decide if you want Eric Holler to be a second-line winger who had 29 goals last year or a third-liner. You've added your depth and your versatility. Uh, and they are, they still have that chip. You know, I thought all that would be gone because everyone's accepted them. But, you know, Jonathan Marcesso could not have looked more sour when we talked about how people are already expecting them to come down to earth. They are angry. They are, they're chopping at the bit and they want to go out and start 10 and 0, I think, to, to, to prove a point. So I, I would not, you know, I don't think Vegas is going to the cup final, but I do think they're a playoff team. Uh-huh. That, now, it, it, Craig, do you think that? But when you when you think, is there a downside to having Eric Carlson in San Jose? Like, is there, 
you know, with Brent Burns, uh, like, does, is there any downside to that? Or do you automatically elevate now the Sharks to, okay, you know, are they Winnipeg? Are they Nashville? Are they, are they better? Are they in that same category? Or how do you, like, to your point about, you know, this sort of massive collection of teams capable of anywhere between, you know, 90 and 100 points, which should guarantee, you know, if you're 94, 95, you should be in the playoffs, but maybe that's not going to be the case. But does, you know, does Carlson change things that much in terms of the balance of power, do you think? Because I think there's still a lot of questions, you know, do you completely throw out last season in the tire fire that, that was and continues to be the Ottawa Senators organization? Or how, how do you view that? Yeah, I, so what I think that trade does, I, I, I see zero downside. And I think what it does is it, it removes San Jose from that, that huge cluster of teams in that 95-point range into one that you're like, I, you feel good about saying that team, without any crazy injuries, should win the Pacific. And, and okay. I mean, just look at history. Like anytime you have multiple Norris-caliber defensemen together, you know, Niedermeyer, Pronger, or wh- whoever it is, like that, it's it's never happens because it's impossible to put, to, to pull it off, but it, it's, you know, you can make it work. And you think about what Pete DeVore can do now at, at any moment he has Burns, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Black, Mark Edward Vlasic yeah. or Eric Carlson on the ice. Uh, you know, like it, it, there's always going to be a, a number one bonafide, number one, probably Norris candidate on the ice, no matter what he does. And, and that's such a competitive advantage just, advantage for San Jose. The team in that division I'm worried about. You talk about who's going to take a step back. I think Anaheim takes a bit like, I just don't see as competitive as that division is, as competitive as the West is going to be. I think that's, if we're looking for teams that I have to remove to get St. Louis in or whoever, that's that's the team I'm looking at. Yeah. Alright, Pierre. You, who would you, which defense would you rather have right now? The 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 big three in in San Jose, and I'm not dis- discounting the rest of the, the the group in San Jose, but the big three in San Jose, or the big four or five in Nashville. Do you, is there? You know, that like as I, I, I that, again, it goes and you know Winnipeg's not all that far behind in terms of the, you know uh, Kevin Chevel day off uh, managing to keep that young team pretty much all together with the exception of Paul Stastny heading off in free agency. But we're, I think it's, if you look at Nashville and San Jose, I I think that's a great argument or a great debate to have. And, and, and who knows, maybe we're looking at a Western conference final with those two defenses leading the way. Yeah, I guess it's hard not to go with San Jose at this point. I mean, I love that Nashville four, uh, but I think at the end of the day, individually, the ability that Eric Carlson and Brent Burns have historically to take over a game by themselves, which is hard to do in this sport, is is almost next to none. And I think Vlasic's the best shutdown defenseman in, in the NHL. He was fourth in my Norris Trophy uh, ballot last season. Kind of nuts. And, uh, you know, Craig mentioned it, but, you know, when Pronger and Edermeyer are Hall of Famers, we've got to be careful, but... When they were in Anaheim, we know how that 07 season ended, and those two guys played 40 minutes a game. <laughs> and every time you looked out in the ice, one or the other was on, and at the end, they were both on. Um, so it's, it's an incredible weapon, certainly come playoff time. But you know, I, I'm just going to plug my own piece here, but I was curious about your thoughts, both of you, on it, the, the CBA implications, Eric Carlson's future, which I kind of stumbled upon this week. But the Sharks were fully aware of it before they made the trade. 
But the idea that if, if he cares that much about an eight-year deal, which I have to assume that he would, given where he is in his career, that he can't sign until after the February 25th trade deadline, what, what do you guys think of that? And, and, and is having to wait all that time for an eight-year deal a good thing in terms of falling in love, you think, with the, with the Sharks in the area? Or does it give a guy like him time to think I'm closer to July 1st? How do you think that's going to play out? Well, I'm not, I'm not, I, well, I was going to say, my, when I saw that, Pierre, which I, I didn't realize that was a thing. Like, I, I'm, I was really caught off guard by that. Um, I, you know, my, as great as San Jose is, and, how, and anybody you talk to is like, you know what, players tend to fall in love with San Jose. You know, the, the smart bet is that he stays. The other thing that also happens is when a guy is still – a free agent at that point in the year and you're now only you've played your whole career and now you're only a few months away from having the ability to at least have the John Tavares, Steven Stamkos treatment. Uh, I think at least op- it opens up the idea of Carlson saying, look, I love it here, but why wouldn't I take a look mm-hmm. at, at other situations? I mean, that's, you know, that, I think it's an interesting development. Well, and isn't the opposite side of that coin and, and Craig, you said there's zero downside to having Carlson there, but I think there. I think it's fair to ask. You know, what Eric Carlson are we going to see? Are we going to see the two-time Norris Trophy winner? Are we going to see the guy who was the catalyst to, uh, you know, really a, a fairly thin Ottawa team going to double overtime Game Seven Eastern Conference Final two years ago against Pittsburgh? Um, or are we going to see something lesser? And does that time give Doug Wilson pause to say, you know what, eight years? Yikes, that, that might not be what this team needs. And I, I think that's going to be the fascinating part is, you know, if he's what everyone imagines, and Pierre, I know that you have, you know, you've noted this, that people who've seen him, you know, preparing for wherever he was going to go, that he looks like a man possessed. He's got so much to prove. And if that's the case and he's a 70-plus point guy again, okay. You know, you're Doug Wilson, you know, counting the seconds down to you can lock him up for eight years. But if he's less than that, or if he gets hurt, then I think then that's the issue of, geez, what mm-hmm. is what? How you know what kind of exposure do we want at you know eight times ten or whatever the number settles in at? Um, to me, that's the, that extra time. I think you know that, that it it will either answer a lot of questions and maybe make things very simple, or they may raise a whole host of questions that may make things a little bit more murky at least from the club side. So, agree? Yeah, no, great, great, great points by both of you. I mean, and let's be clear for our, our listeners that if, if Carlton were, was willing to sign for less than eight years, like a six or seven year deal, he could do it today. Yeah. Back while we were taping. Yes. But we assume, like, <laughs> yeah, which uh, we have to assume happened. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we assume uh, everything we're hearing is that eight, eight years would matter a lot to Carlton. And not, not just that, but I think, his camp is telling all teams that we're trying to trade for him, whether it's Dallas, Tampa, or Vegas, uh, that he was not going to sign an extension through the trade process, which, by the way, you know, that hampered the, the, the ceiling on what the centers were able to get back because he wasn't going to sign through the process. Um, but looking back, I assume that it's also because Newport knew of this rule. In fact, I know they knew about the eight-year rule and the trade deadline. So that, too, is a factor now. One last thing on this. If Eric Carlson does want eight years, he can only get in one place now. Yeah. He can only get in San Jose because if he goes to market, it'll be like John Tavares. It'll be a seven-year deal. He can't get eight anywhere else. So that's the one 
the one thing to consider, certainly in terms of a, a leverage point for San Jose, is Carlson's really, really torn between where he loves playing now in the Bay Area and the, the, the potential bonanza of July 1st, he will lose a year if that matters at all. Yeah. Uh, all right, Craig, I'm, and then you know this really happens for me, that we're, we're, we're going to move on and we're going to cut you loose. We're going to actually, right. we're, we're going to chat with Aaron Portsline, one of our fine writers in Columbus, maybe one of the most interesting markets in the NHL right now. And yeah. we're going to hear from New Carolina captain, Justin Williams, and uh, whether he believes what I believe is that team is ready for uh, a breakout year. I've got my Stockholm jersey on now as we speak, by the way, when we talk about Carolina. But uh, I want to give uh, before you before you head off. I, I'm going to give you the final word. What What are you looking forward to most? What to pre opening day, a couple weeks away? What What are you really looking forward to? And and uh, what are you keeping an eye on in the next few days? And, uh, gosh, it's, uh, you know, I would say, um, you know, one of the things that's happened at the athletic is we've, we've covered the, um, more than any place I've ever worked, we covered the prospects so much and the young players. And there's been, I feel like there's been so much hype about every generation of young players that comes in or every group of young players that comes into the league every year. So that's so I, now I'm like it used to be you know we would joke at a draft Scott and it would be like three picks in I'm like oh I, I no longer know any player being drafted <laughs> <I'm out. laughs> like you know and maybe that's like more about us than the draft process but um, now it's like you know you all of these guys come in and they they're capable and there's there's going to be a couple guys that have great camps and surprise and at least get that early or early season look and, you know, we're starting to see that. And so, yeah, I'm, what I'm kind of looking forward to is to see which, which young player captures our attention first and, and our imagination. And maybe, you know, is there a surprise player? You know, I was at the game last night and there's people in Detroit certainly inter- interested in a guy like Joe Valeno who slipped to the end of the first round, uh, you know, great skating sentiment who, who, you know, probably is going to play a year junior, but at, at least they're watching closely to say, how close is this guy? And, and, is, is he a guy that gets a look at the start of the season? And and I, I love those kind of stories. I like to track that in the preseason. So that's that's what my mind's at. All right, all right. Well, gentlemen, we're going to bring to a close the first segment of Two Man Advantage. And Craig Cousins, a pleasure to have you aboard. It won't be the last time, of course. And Pierre, don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Aaron Portsline, and we'll hear from Justin Williams, the new captain of the Carolina Hurricanes. So don't go anywhere. All right, here we go. As promised. Second segment, two-man advantage, part two. Pierre, I, I'm, I checked Twitter. I don't think we've been overtaken event, by events yet, but we might be soon because we, we are joined by Aaron Portsline, uh, one of my favorite guys in the business, and, of course, the uh, lead writer. Can I say that, Aaron, lead writer in Columbus for The Athletic? I don't want to offend anyone. Can we call you that? I mean, where, who are any of us without the people around us? Tom Reed, Allison Lucan. Whew, how lucky am I? Um, I think we're a three-headed monster. How's that? <laughs> All right. Well, certainly a veteran writer of the oh, hockey God. scene. And oh. and actually, uh, Craig Custance was on the first segment with us, and we were talking about you know the changes since he came aboard. And I think I saw recently that you celebrated your first anniversary with The Athletic. And I wonder you know, maybe what, what that's been like for you. My guess is, in your copy, you have used expletives or swear words more yeah. often in your year at the athletic than 
than maybe ever before. You know, it's a function of John Tortorella and the, right. whatever. I wonder what the year has been like for you. Has it been different than you thought? Um, you know what? I, first of all, no regrets. Certainly no regrets. Um, and I think we're all sort of figuring out how to best use the, the, the new arrangement we have, the lack of a deadline, the, the lack of space limitations. Uh, that, uh, that's been liberating. Um, but you get so used to doing things a certain way that you're like, okay, make sure that you're not limiting your thinking and you're taking full advantage of all this sort of stuff. So that, that's been really fun and also at times challenging. I think everyone, I think there's a lot of people across this great site that are in that mode sort of trying to figure out, you know, what's the best thing, what's the best way to do all this. Um, it's been, as you mentioned, John Tortorella is perfect for the athletic. You get the full torts when, when he gets going. Um, that's been, that's, I think a lot of people, you get two responses that you get a lot of people saying, you know, I can live without all of the F-bombs. And then you have, I think more people actually say, I love reading it as it was said. Yeah. And thank you for just putting it out there, I can hear his voice and not making me guess what that parentheses expletive is as it would have been published previously. So um, I think it, it's given myself and, and Tom Reed and Alice Weekend and all the people that contribute um, freedom to do things in a new and different way that a lot of people have really responded to. So that's been exciting. Darren, I want to ask you, do, do you... When you are talking to coaches and GMs, and what's their response when they read a story about? And I I know this from talking to some PR people. You know, when another coach or GM is uh, is quoted, and you know, Aaron had a terrific piece this summer after Jack Johnson ended up signing in Pittsburgh, and it was it was from the heart, and there it was no holds barred. It was it was classic. And I'm with Aaron. I really, you know, I've known John a long time, and you really get the you felt that that was John Tortorella speaking in that story. But when you are talking to people, are they, are they shocked? Are they worried? They're like, geez, I don't want you to use, I don't want you quoting me as effing this or whatever. What, I, what, what's the response been when you talk to, to people around the league to something, basically what is an unfiltered, um, you know, look at, at the hockey world and how hockey people speak sometimes. I, I do have one person that I've known a long time that uh, was interviewed by one of our colleagues the Athletic last year, and, uh, uh, and we'll keep names out of it because it was an honest mistake, I think. But um, this person didn't realize that uh, swear words could be on the other site, and so he spoke like he always, you know, talks, and uh, was pretty much stunned the next day when he saw all the apple. F bombs in his uh, in his uh, in his quotes. So uh, I, I think you know we did this at the player tour in Chicago, with Scotty. But we like to. I mean, it's, it's it's good to tell the players or whoever you're interviewing that you know just know that we're quoting you as is. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and funny story is that you were there. Um, uh, Nate McKinnon of the Avalanche, the superstar center. We told him of this. He goes, I know. And then uh, Craig asked him something, and uh, Nate dropped an F-bomb, and it wasn't Craig's vlog the next day. <laughs> so, so, obviously, uh, some players kind of dig it, I guess. 
Yeah. So, okay. So, Aaron, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. So it's not like I need an excuse to, to call you up and chat. But I'm not sure that there is a hotter market right now in, in the National Hockey League than Columbus as we make our way through training camp and, and can see opening day. Well, it's not all right. It's not opening day. That's baseball. It's opening night. Um, sure. And, of course, the storylines in Columbus are not necessarily – um, of the most positive kind, given the, the the contract stance for two key people in Sergei Bobrovsky, the former Vezina Trophy winning netminder, two-time Vezina winner, correct? Correct. And uh, Artemi Panarin, both of whom are heading into contract years and both of whom have made it pretty darn clear that they're not in any hurry to sign extensions in Columbus. And I, I wonder, maybe give us an overview. I thought your stuff really from the first day of, of camp or the first day, day they both spoke on those issues, fascinating, because it didn't seem like there was a lot of wiggle room, and it really does put the organization in a, in a very difficult and, and the, um, you know fascinating position moving forward as a team that, you know, coming off the playoffs and two years in a row and looking like a team that, you know, is still very much in the mix in the Eastern conference, but also needing to keep a, um, you know, a, a very prominent look on the future, how, how they handle these important assets. And I wonder maybe your overview of it and, and, and what, what the mood has been like around that team, given, you know, the, the potential hurdles ahead for GM Yarmo Kekalainen. Yeah. Well, it comes at a time where if you find the, the sort of arc of this franchise, this, these last few years under John Davidson, Jarmo Kekalainen, and John Tortorella, this is the longest stretch of, of sustained success that they've had, right? And so you, you get the sense that finally in Columbus it's starting to elevate to a point where you can say the Stanley Cup without being giggled at. Yeah. And now you've got... Uh, arguably, but it's not a good argument, I don't think, against it anyways, the two best players that have ever worn the sweater. Let's be honest, at least while they were here, um, Sergei Bobrovsky is the best goaltender that this franchise has ever seen by a long shot. Artemi Panarin, I think Rick Nash had some wonderful years, but Panarin may be the most elite forward they've had, and now both of them appear to be heading into their last year. What was so strange about that uh, day before camp when they both spoke was Panarin kept the sort of the mood that he has maintained through his agent all summer, which was, it's nothing against Columbus. I love everybody. Like, he's basically passing out chocolates to everybody. Everybody's in a good mood here. Um, I just don't know where I want to sign for eight years, right? So, this, you know, this is where I'm at. And people are like, okay, you know, if you're for Columbus, you've got a bit of an inferiority complex anyways. So that stings a little bit, but the guy's being upfront about it, at least, as difficult as it is. And then the Bobrovsky thing was the real gut punch, because this has been the good soldier here yeah. for years. And it's been, for the first three or four years he was here, clearly the best player. Like, carried them to win, they had no business winning. But I think the talent around him has picked up quite a bit now, and he's, he is responsible for lifting the bar here but he may have lifted it to a point where now that's being held against him because he can't get over that bar. He has struggled mightily in the past. This isn't just a feeling. This isn't just a writer being critical of him. Look at the numbers. They're not good at all. Yeah. 
And so the standard's been lifted here in part because of him. And I think he's been deeply offended at the notion that he has struggled in the playoffs, does not want to hear it, will not hear it. Uh, says, no, I've not saw. I was very good against Pittsburgh. I do not need a sports psychologist. Was, was offended at the suggestion that he would be one of those. And so he comes in and just puts the gauntlet down. I know what I'm doing. The team knows what I'm doing. Let's just play the year. And that took a, a lot of people back and pissed off a lot of people at the highest reaches of the organization because they've not seen this side from Bob. And frankly, they don't feel like it's a settled matter. Like, I don't think he has articulated to them, this is what I'm doing, end of story. So very strange start to camp, and it did not do much to ease uh, the nerves of people in Columbus who are wondering what the future might hold. Yeah. Pierre, I, I, this is, I mean, these are not new issues for Yarmol Kekalainen. In fact, you know, we've spent a lot of time in the last little while talking about guys like Max Pacioretty going into his contract year. He you know, leaves the captaincy in Montreal and is in Vegas. So Eric Carlson, we talk a lot about him going into his contract year. Now he's in San Jose. So the, this stuff happens. It, it, is there is there any kind of blueprint, do you think? Like if you're Yarmul Kekalainen and you're looking, okay, how do I navigate this? Do I do I automatically have to trade both those players before the deadline or before July 1st uh, at the draft to, to, to make my team whole or as whole as possible? Do you roll the dice and say, you know what? I think we can win the Metro and I think we can go three rounds and then you know, or beyond and, and see what happens after that. Like, is there, is there a way to navigate this that is, you know, that there's a clear path or is this just going to be, this is just going to be why Yarmulke Kekalainen gets paid the big bucks to be an NHL GM because there are no easy or clear answers to something like this. Yeah. Well, the first thing you do, of course, as a GM is you sit down with ownership and you, and you literally lay out what you just said. And I suspect that's happened, and, and um, you know Aaron can vouch for that either way. But yeah, but you need ownership backing if you're going to say, if we have a chance to win the cup, are we ready to let these guys walk after the year? Yeah. Should we try and win, and then figure, you know if we need to reset to use Mark Bergerman's uh, uh, term because that's what the Habs have done, then fine. And, and you know in football, in the NFL, people are used to the notion of players playing out their contracts and trying to win that year because people live in the here and now in football. And then the guy walks, he walks, you got cap room, you got to go out and replace him. It's funny how we haven't really got there in hockey. Like there's this yeah. nervous tension about losing a player for nothing. And I understand why, because you can, you can recoup some important assets. But what if Columbus, which was as not to bring up some, some terrible history, so close to being up three, nothing in a series over over the Washington Capitals, what if Columbus can win the Cup this year? Would it not be worth losing Panarin and Bobrovsky for nothing July 1st? I'd say, hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, you win basically one Cup every 25 years if you're lucky in this sport. And I think it would be well worth it. But, that's, but you know, I, I suspect what they're going to have to do is at some point midway through the season decide if they think they really have a shot. And... You know, it's no different than, you know, um, you know, there have been some great trades over the years, but let's talk about, you know, the young Jerome McGinley who gets traded from Dallas to Calgary as a prospect. 
Um, but Dallas ends up winning the cup in 99, right? Yep. Um, worth it for both organizations, right? Yeah. And so my point is, if you looked at Panarin and Bobrovsky as your own self-rental almost, if we traded for Panarin and Bobrovsky as rentals this year, like San Jose might have potentially just done with Eric Carlson, depending whether or not they could re-sign him, is it not worth it if you win the cup? So I, I, so I think that's the great debate here for, for this franchise. And, you know, I feel bad because I think Columbus is, is a tremendous market. Their fan base deserves better than this, but you can't force a player to resign if he doesn't want to be there. And there is zero chance that Aaron's going to sign there. So it is what it is. But, you know, if you trade them over the next couple months and take a knee when you're sitting in a playoff spot, how does that sit? I, it's, it's an awful position to be in. Yeah. Aaron, let me ask you this then. And I think, you know, I, you know Pierre is, as usual, he is, he has succinctly put this all into perspective. And I think the, now the question is, is this team, are, what are they capable of in your estimation? Are they a, that kind of team that could just say, as Pierre pointed out, we're just going to look at it like we just added two prime pieces and we're going to push all our chips in the middle of the table and let's go and let's see what happens. And sort of a secondary question, does this position, the position taken by Sergei Bobrovsky and Artemi Panarin, does it affect the team's ability to have success? Do the rest of the players in that room, does it change the dynamic? Does it change their, that, their ability to achieve what they might be able to achieve because of those positions, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. I, I think, I mean, I, I think it's, it, it's a stretch to say that they are a Stanley Cup contender, and I say that because it's a team that's never been out of the first round, yeah. right? Including last year. Yes, they were close to delivering an off-out test to Washington, but they didn't do it, and they let it slip away. I think it's a team that can win in the playoffs, I think it has the talent level and the potential to be a threat in the playoffs. I, I think it's a bit of a reach to say this is a Stanley Cup contender as currently put together. Yeah, I'll say that. I, I do worry, frankly, about what this says to the room. There's, there, you know, whatever it means that we say, uh, could this be disruptive in the room? I do think it is disruptive when the starting goaltender, the number one guy, um, causes such a fuss at the start. And people wonder, like, hey, you've got a full no move. You're in the final year of your contract. Just go, just play your year and go on. Why does it have to be like this? The other thing I worry about is what message does this send to some of the younger players who are coming up, uh, who are going to be in a position to sign massive contracts here. I'm thinking of Zach Wierenski. I'm um, thinking of Pierre-Luc Dubois. What message does this send, uh, not just to young players here, but around the league? Why, or, or wait, why can't you be in Columbus long-term? What is it about Columbus that makes you not want to be here long-term? I think a guy like Wierenski may view Columbus differently than Panarin does. Uh, he's a Midwest guy. I don't think he needs a uh, so-called status city to be happy. Um, but I, it, it's, not, it's not a good look for the franchise, even though it's not the franchise that's doing it, just doesn't paint them in a great light. Yeah. 
Well, Peter, let me. So right, and, and, and the other thing uh, I would add, guys, uh, because I think you, you can't discount this part of it. But now that Pacioretty and Carlson have been traded, because that was really the national focus league wide over the last six, seven months was what was going to happen with the Habs captain, you know, given that iconic franchise and the, and the drama there. And of course, Carlson being arguably the best defense in the world. But now that they've been moved, you've seen a national shift towards Columbus. I mean, my colleague Darren Dreger uh, yesterday had a, you know, an update on Panarin and Probovsky on our insider trading. You know, this, this was a local story for the most part until now, even though it's huge because it was getting kind of buried by Carlson and Pacioretty on, on the national psyche. Well, not now. I mean, this is the biggest story in terms of, you know, a, a superstar in Panarin and, and a, a perennial Vesna contender and winner in Bobrovsky uh, seemingly on their way out. That's it, it, So you can say what you want, but for, for Yermo Kekalinen and, and, and John Tortorella and the rest of that team, every city they go to, from here on in, this is the question, this is the headline. And and you can say all you want about people saying, ah, we, that's just white noise. Bullshit. Yeah. It is front and center, uh, especially for an organization that's not used to being on the national stage. Okay. They were going to be on it all year for, for not the right reasons. Yeah. yeah, if I can throw this in here real quick, too. Like, I, I think, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Yarmo Kekalina, there's only so much you can do in this situation and none of it's great, but his, his approach to this has been, well, listen, if I'm only getting futures of prospects and draft picks now, and I'm only going to get futures later at the trade deadline, I'll keep Panarin for 60 games. And you go, okay, I get the logic. Let's just think of the optics and what that looks like. Maybe Columbus is leading the Metro. Maybe they've got the best record in the Eastern conference at the trade deadline. Is he on February 25th going to pull the best forward out of the lineup for prospects and picks? I mean, that is that is unthinkable. That is what may come to pass. And, and I think, I mean, the other thing that I'm sure you'll delve into at some point, Aaron, is is and this is going to be paramount to this to this conversation is that is Panarin going to go out the Carlson way or the Pacioretty way? Which is to say. Montreal was able to save face, and Mark Bergman actually make a, made a heck of a trade with Vegas in getting Nick Suzuki and, and Thomas Tatar in a second-round pick because, and only because, Max Pacioretty was willing to sign a four-year extension with Vegas as part of it. Yeah. On the flip side, Eric Carlson made it be known uh, that no matter where he was going to be dealt, he was not ready, he was not in a position to sign an extension, which limited uh, what Ottawa could get. That's a pretty big dynamic, I think, in the Panarin situation, yeah. big time. Well, and you know, it's interesting. You know, I think there are some, you know, some similarities in, you know, in marketplace and, you know, medium. We would call it small to medium sized market. I don't know how we we measure these things, but I always think about what happened to David Poyle um, before Nashville really sort of rose to the prominence that it now uh, enjoys as a as an elite team in the NHL. And David Poyle talking still regrets seeing Dan Hamwis walk out the door, still regret seeing Ryan Suter walk out the door and not, you know, players that they developed and, you know, there was, you know, they were homegrown players, which is different from, I mean, Bob Vrosky is almost homegrown, but um, the, the same dynamic is that 
at the end of the day, I think David Poyle always regretted that that he lost an important asset and didn't get at least something back, something to show for it. And I and I understand that thinking too. But to your point, Aaron, if you if you are committed to that course of action, and your team is fighting for a playoff spot or maybe fighting for a division lead. And you have to make that deal, and you can always make uh, some sort of deal at, at the draft, I suppose. But of course, you're, you know, that's that's a different animal entirely. So it it does create the kind of dynamic that is is going to generate a lot of stories and a lot of talk. But it's it's going to make things a lot hotter and different in Columbus than 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 a team would want it to be. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead Aaron. Well, I was was just going to say that I believe David Poyle, because of what you just said, the Ryan Suter thing will haunt him forever. I mean, if you want to see a lemon face when you bring up Ryan Suter and David Poyle, um, I believe you would have traded Ryan Ellis before camp this this month had Ryan Ellis not signed the extension. Like that, that's how that changed David Poyle forever in terms of core players and, and their UFA year. I, I, I'm telling you right now that it, it would have been very possible that he would have been that proactive and not let it drag out all year. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I mean, this, I just, I just, I look at the situation here in Columbus and there's a, there's a growing sense with people. Maybe they should go for it. Right. And I, I think that's, easy to say uh, it looks good on paper it looks fun on paper anyways go for it but how a team in this market can just let a Vezina trophy goalie and a point of game forward both just go I, I don't I, I, I believe to Pierre's point earlier I believe that management here has the backing of ownership that that cannot happen that maybe one of those could be absorbed. I don't think there's any way they can let both of those guys just leave with nothing in return. I think the goaltending situation is different. I think there are only so many teams that can handle a $10 million goaltender, salary cap-wise. So pair that down, and then pair that down how many teams need a number one goaltender. I don't think the market for Bobrovsky will be as wide as the market would seem to be for Panarin. Um, but all it takes is one. I, this is a really difficult spot for Yarmouk to go on. All right. Aaron, given the short history of Two Man Advantage podcast, uh, I'm going to let you go, and then you can go in and phone Yarmo because I'm pretty sure he's already made a deal for both those players, given the way the podcast has <laughs> gone. So, yeah, um, you know, I better check my phone. Yeah, you better check that. But Aaron Portsline of The Athletic in Columbus, thanks. I think it's, I mean, it's going to be a fascinating story as we move along and uh, it won't be the last time we talk about it but thanks for joining us on two man advantage today yeah well great thanks for having me all right appreciate it take care i, I, I love that that's such a great i it's, i feel bad for yarmo kekalane and i feel bad for the fans in columbus because as you pointed out they they certainly deserve more than than what they've had and what they're going to get in terms of drama and speaking of deserving more how about the carolina hurricanes no playoff appearances since 2009, but a brand new facelift for that team. Rod Brindamore taking over as the rookie head coach there, maybe the most important person in franchise history. And a new captain, 
a guy you know very well, Pierre, Mr. Game 7, Justin Williams. Uh, I, can't, I can't think of a better guy to wear the, the C in, in Carolina. We, I mean, were you surprised or maybe were you surprised that he didn't get the C a year ago when he signed uh, his two-year deal to return to a team he won a Stanley Cup with in 2006? Well, I'll tell you what, he's been a leader everywhere he's been and just uh, one of the great ones in our game in terms of character and, and uh, ability to express himself and and backing his words with actions. And he's obviously known as Mr. Game 7. And, you know, he's got all the Stanley Cup rings to prove it. And, uh, and just a, a wonderful choice as captain, I think, because it's obviously a lot of youth on that Hurricanes team and uh, he's the kind of guy, if you're a young player in that room, that you want to see uh, what he does when he gets to the room, uh, when he leaves the room, how he handles himself, what he says, what he does. Uh, just a, a great choice for me to to be captain. Yeah, that's a, that's a great segue. That's why I love working with you. I don't even have to tee you up. And that leads perfectly to my conversation with the new captain of the Carolina Hurricanes, Justin Williams.
All right, Pierre, that's bringing us to a close of the second edition of Two Man Advantage. I always, uh, I always have so much fun doing this with you. And so let me, I'm going to leave you with one question. Carolina Hurricanes, playoff team, yes or no? No, but I'll tell you who is. <laughs> I, I do think Carolina will be, I, I think Carolina will play meaningful games right to the end. I think they'll just miss out. Okay. I believe the Florida Panthers are like this year's Winnipeg Jets. Ooh. I, I think they're the team that takes a massive jump. It's a tough division. It's all about Tampa Bay, Toronto, and Boston in the Atlantic. But I think the Florida Panthers, at the very least, will be fourth again, but in a playoff spot. And who knows if they don't actually challenge for more than that with the big three. I think the Panthers, a lot of it depends for me, obviously, on the health of Roberto Luongo. And they, they brought in Michael Hutchinson to, to add depth behind James Reimer. But, boy, that top six is something else. And, uh, yeah, I like I like Florida's rise up the standings. All right, brother. Well, that's fodder for a future two-man advantage podcast. But in this moment... I bid you adieu, my friend. You can get your tool belt on and go back and start uh, with the renovations. You, you don't actually have a tool belt, do you? Uh, listen, just do me a favor and trade me Ezekiel Elliott in our fantasy football pool. Like, it's really annoying to me that you won't. So, come on. You don't need him. <laughs> All right. Stop being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It is my nature. All right, buddy. Uh, we'll talk again next week. All right. All right. Bye. Sounds good.